Okay, Hebrews 11 and verse 9, it says, well, I'll start with verse 8 so we get a complete picture here. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by, not, by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. <laughs> Interesting. A city who has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And so Abraham wasn't uh, particularly concerned about wealth. He wasn't concerned about his own personal comfort because he came from Ur of the Chaldees, which was the most agriculturally you know, a prosperous area to live in the ancient Near East. And he came from a secure place with his father and his family. And there's no indication that there was any problem until after he obeyed God and went to the promised land. Then they had a famine. Okay, so Abraham was willing to uh, actually leave behind prosperity and go to the promised land in obedience to God, even though it had less to offer at the time than where he came from. Now, subsequently, Abraham became very wealthy because God blessed him. But even after Abraham accumulated, you know, uh, herdsmen and herds and what have you, we can still see that he didn't really particularly care about that. Because remember when there was a dispute between Lot and Abraham uh, concerning uh, because of the there wasn't enough room for both of them, so to speak. And what did, what did Abraham say? Take you take a look. I don't care. You you have the best um, because Abraham didn't seem to be too concerned about that, but Lot was, and Lot's desire for prosperity led him to Sodom. <laughs> and when he got there, well, you know the story. He got into big trouble. And so Abraham uh, serves as an example of someone of faith and obedience, whose motivation was to believe God and His promises and. The reason I believe the, the book of Hebrews shows that Abraham had an eternal perspective is that the evidence from his life would have to indicate that he did. That he believed in promises that were never realized in his lifetime. Now, as we discuss this, there's certainly a question about just how much did people in, say, in the time of the Pentateuch understand eternal, uh, promises because they didn't have as clear of a teaching about the resurrection uh, as we do, and as what was developed later. For instance, in uh, Daniel, you have a explicit passage about the resurrection. You have a couple in Isaiah. There's not so many in the Pentateuch, and so scholars wonder, well, did they really believe? Did they really understand the resurrection? Probably the earliest mention would be in Job, where he says, I know in the latter day I'll stand upon the earth. And Job lived probably before Abraham. But one thing that they did have, and, and I, but it doesn't rule it out. The book of Hebrews says that they were looking for a heavenly city, so they believed in eternity. And they believed that they went to be with their fathers, so that these fathers still existed if they went to be with them. And another point that I want to make, because I was studying this, that I think is important for our understanding of this entire section of Hebrews, is that 
they had an idea of corporate solidarity that's so different than how we think as Americans. And we need to understand the Hebrew idea of corporate solidarity to understand what motivated these people. And the, the idea is that they, they lived on and the promises lived on through their descendants. And so you see the concept of descendants in these promises that are given to Abraham continually. It's repeated over and over again that he'd have many descendants and that descendants would, would inherit the land. So as far as Abraham's concerned, even though he never owned anything but a burial place for his wife, if indeed at some future point in history, his literal descendants lived in and possessed this literal land, God's promise to Abraham was was fulfilled. Amen. Okay? Now, we would tend to not think that way, but we're not thinking like Jewish people in the Bible. And, and so, if indeed that happens, then Abraham is receiving the promise in as, just as much as Joshua did when he went into the land. Because it's all part and parcel, and they have this whole concept of corporate solidarity that carries on through generation to generation to generation to this very day, as a matter of fact. All right? And so that also helps us understand future promises that, won't, that aren't fulfilled until actually the millennium. Because Abraham was promised the land all the way from the Nile to the Euphrates, right? When did that ever happen? It has not yet. But if there is some future time that it happens, and I believe there will be, probably not until Messiah comes, the way they're going now, they're getting less land as they bargain it away. Uh, land for peace, and what they owe, every time they give up land for peace, what do they get? More people trying to kill them. But nevertheless, uh, I believe Messiah will will do that. And the greater son of Abraham, the greater seed of Abraham, is Messiah himself. And Messiah comes and establishes peace in the land from the Nile to the Euphrates. Then the promise is fulfilled. Amen. According to the scriptural thinking. So I wanted that us to all have this background because without it, these passages don't have the impact that they really should. So he lived as an alien in the land of promise. One of the things that this um, passage does is it sets a precedent for the people of God being considered aliens or pilgrims. All right? And in some ways, that's true for us. Amen. Passing through. <laughs> Are we just passing? There used to be a lot of old gospel songs about that. Um, when I was, became a new Christian in 1971 and I started going to church, in a little Pentecostal church, their songs were about being strangers and pilgrims and someday I'll fly away and I have a home in heaven. And and I think that, that that music was born out of their understanding that they really didn't have much going for them in this life because they were the on the wrong side of the tracks and, and, and the movement had gotten its, had its roots in revivals that had happened amongst mostly people that were poor. And so... Praise God. But it doesn't matter. I have a mansion just over the hillside. <laughs> and, and I may have a shack here, but there's a mansion just over the hillside. And, um, one of the things that I have lived long enough to see change in, in my lifetime is all that started to go away 
in the 70s and 80s, even as I was a new Christian, by the 80s, this health and wealth gospel came in. And all of a sudden, they were started being embarrassed to sing about the sweet by and by because we were being told by these nationally known preachers that this was just a defeated mentality. All right? And that God actually called us to rule now and to take dominion over the earth now and to establish the kingdom now and to accumulate the world's wealth now and to get what we need now. And, and people literally, I saw people on TV mocking the very things that when I was a new Christian, we all held dear. Amen. Um, and that had a, a, enough of an impact that I, it's changed the title. If you listen to the lyrics of songs that have been written in the last 25 years, you see a dearth of songs coming from an eternal perspective. And I don't think it's to our benefit. Now, of course, you know we bring back these old ones, don't we? We're not ashamed to sing, Some glad day when this life is over, I'll fly away. Amen. <laughs> so, now, back to our passage. It says here, By faith he was an alien. Isn't there a verse? I don't have it on my cross-references, but does anybody know a verse in the New Testament where it says that we're aliens, strangers? Doesn't James say we're a vapor passing through? Okay, that's the passage. What is life? We're like a little vapor in James. I think there's one in Philippians. Is there one in Philippians? Like toward the end of chapter 3? See, you can find it. I've got an idea where I think it is. Philippians 3. We talked about citizenship, maybe. So our citizenship's in heaven. Amen. Amen. And then we eagerly wait a Savior because this life isn't all that great. Three, Philippians 3. 20 and 21. And the reason that was interesting in Philippians is because the Philippians prided themselves in their Roman citizenship. And they love the privileges of citizenship. And Paul says that they're not worth much compared to citizenship in heaven. So, they, so Christians continue to be aliens and strangers who are looking for a city, um, a heavenly uh, city. Okay, now where should we start? Jim Bukowski, Genesis 23:4, and Diane, Acts 7, 5 and 6. Okay, that was Abraham confessing that he was a stranger and an alien. It's, uh, you know, I've never had the experience of being an alien like somebody, you know, if you talk to somebody who moved to America from somewhere else and when you first get here, you're not a citizen, you're not, you don't fit in. I have never been that, but the closest experience I had to it was be. Ironically enough, being a student at Iowa State University. <laughs> Let me explain that. It seemed kind of odd that when you're an Iowa farm boy and you go to Iowa State, you'd feel like an alien. But the reason was that um, that the little town of Ames had 20,000 citizens and it had 20,000 students on top of that. Well, the citizens grew to look at students as not one of us and they don't belong here. And if you got 20,000 students in a town of, with 20,000 normal residents, whatever crime, whatever bad thing happened in the town was caused by a student. 
Okay, no matter, it may be out of 20,000 students, there may be 100 of them that went around and did something bad, really bad. I mean, everybody's doing something bad. But um, What happened was the townspeople couldn't stand students. We were all, sight unseen, they knew we were wicked, we were irresponsible, and they didn't want anything to do with us. And so that's the only experience I ever had where I felt like an alien. It's like... No, that doesn't work. Actually, we're all aliens. Yeah, we, you got born again. Uh, uh, you became an alien. You're right. an alien, and you're right. not very popular being an alien <laughs> right. on the planet Earth. You're right, Dan. In some ways, all Christians are aliens. That's what we're talking about. Another example similar to yours would be um, in the Navy. I was in the Navy in San Diego, but they people they just hated you. So right. Because the reason they do is because a few servicemen did something really bad. And so, and you guys were, you could see who they were. Okay, servicemen. Yeah. Just like us students, we stood out. So they, you know, there's no use. I used to be a pheasant hunter and I used to go around. There was no use even bringing my shotgun to Ames because there wasn't a single person would let us hunt on their property because we were students. Because we, they figured we'd shoot the windows out of their house or something. And, but I went back home to where I was from and I could hunt anywhere. So, anyhow. You're right, Dan. That's where I was going with that. As soon as you're born again, if you're confessing Christ, you become an alien. And the people at work will say, oh, you're one of them. (laughs) One of them born, you're one of them born again types. (laughs) You're you're one of them religious. Dan, are you a religious fanatic? I wish I had a more fanaticism. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay, um, did you do Acts 7 yet? No, Acts 7, 5, and 6. And God gave to him no inheritance, not even enough to set his foot up. But even when Abraham had no child, he possessed to give it to him for a position and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. Okay, that was Stephen preaching to his Jewish brethren, and he started with the patriarchs and brought them right up to Messiah. And so he has a history lesson with the point, and the point is they should repent and believe Messiah, and that this ultimate promise that was given to Abraham is fulfilled in Messiah. So Abraham received a promise that 400 years later, his descendants would come back and possess the land. And that's what what happened, but it wasn't without a lot of problems. <laughs> right, uh, because of the wilderness wanderings and the rebellion and unbelief and all of that. Okay, so verse ten says, "For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God." Now, I wonder why it calls this a city here. Anybody got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think that ultimately the the people, the Hebrew uh, people, their key place was Jerusalem. All right, even though that wasn't yet the place for Abraham, we had this thing of Melchizedek, who may have been the king of Salem. So we have a little prefiguring of Jerusalem, ultimately, in in Abraham, and then all then later on in their history, that becomes the city of David. When you go all the way into Revelation, then Jerusalem still has significance. 
there's a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And so, uh, the Bible's all tied together with these themes. And if you don't understand revel- Revelation tying up these themes, it's really hard to understand the Bible. So I got some cross references I think will help us. Um, Sam, Isaiah 14:32, Norma, John 14 and verse 2, Mary, Philippians 3:20. There's the one I think that we found earlier, and uh, Tim, Revelation 21:2. Okay, Isaiah. Excuse me, <clears throat> Isaiah 14:32. How then will one answer the message of the nation? There it says the Lord has founded Zion, which is a reference to Jerusalem, and that it would be a refuge for the people. Then John fourteen two. In my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. That was what Jesus said. So where was this place that Jesus went to prepare for us? Yeah, but the Jehovah Witnesses say that the Bible never says we're going to go to heaven. Maybe they're wrong. Wait, no. 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, which they're not Jewish and they're not from the 12 tribes, but the elite 144,000 get to go to heaven. Yeah. The rest of them, God don't. Well, remember John 14:2. That's the verse you want to tell the Jehovah Witnesses. Because they'll say, where does the Bible say you're going to go to heaven? If you just look up heaven in your concordance, you won't find a verse that says you are going to go to heaven. <laughs> All right, but if you go to John fourteen two, it says it very clearly. It just doesn't have the word heaven right here. All right, yes. That uh, going to prepare a place for you <clears throat> is part of a Jewish wedding uh, ceremony, or after the promise mm-hmm. is made from the girl to be married. To the, to the man when they're like 12 or 13, then the boy and his father would go and for all those years until they were wed, prepare a plan. Yeah. For the bride. Right. And then you have the marriage, the big celebration when the time comes because they have the place prepared first. Yeah, I do believe that analogy is in there. And so what, so Jesus is going to, he says, I'm going to, what did he say? I'm going to come again and bring you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Amen. Amen. And so that's the marriage. Wow. Good. All right, Mary, Philippians three twenty again. We just read it, but. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under control will transform our holy bodies so that they will be like His all right, so again, there's our heavenly citizenship. And then Revelation 21 and verse 2. There's the bride idea. Wow. So the Bible just ties, these themes start in Genesis and, and, they're, and they're developed throughout the Scriptures from the Old Testament through the New. And then they're culminated in the book of Revelation. That's why I think that people that don't take Revelation seriously or literally in any regard are robbing themselves of a motherload of, of truth that really sums up the Bible. God doesn't leave things dangling. He sums it all up. And these promises are going to be fulfilled. And Revelation is very important. Amen. I, taught all, I, I preached verse by verse through Revelation one time back in 99. Um, 
And I was amazed when I did that because it was the most intensive study I ever did of Revelation. But I, I, what amazed me the most is how many Old Testament themes are alluded to in Revelation. And it goes back and back again and again into these Old Testament promises and shows that they are yet going to be fulfilled. Now, this idea that they're all spiritualized into the church and don't have any particular literal significance, I think is a very unfortunate way of looking at Revelation. And it, and it confuses people. All right, so let's go to verse 11, Hebrews 11:11. 11, 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. i got a discussion question. How can it be that it says that, that Sarah considered him faithful who promised when what literally happened is Sarah laughed? It almost seemed like she doubted rather than considered him faithful. <laughs> well, that, yeah, <laughs> that, you know, she could have been, but the passage in the Old Testament gives the implication. Remember, she hid the fact that she laughed. She was inside the tent the second time. And said, no, I didn't laugh. And they even came up with a way to make it happen in man's way. Right. I mean, so it wasn't like... Yeah, it wasn't like... The reason I'm bringing this up is I think maybe we'll find a little bit of encouragement because we're all... Uh, it's not as great in faith as we think we should be. But what I'm saying is this. God gave the promise on the scene of history. And it wasn't like Sarah or even Abraham, that for that matter, just immediately were like really big, strong people of faith and say, oh yeah, God promised and I know it's going to happen and I'm not wavering one bit. And well, I don't care how many years it takes, it's going to happen. No, it was a lot more messy than that. <laughs> they laughed. They had Ishmael. Uh, it looked hopeless. Uh, they, you know, they, they had their stumbles and fumbles trying, you know, it, it, to live out this promise. But they didn't ultimately give up, and they ultimately did believe God, and so it's accounted as faith. Yes. I was, Kathy, I was thinking of that same passage. Yeah, there was a person, Jesus said, all things possible for those who believe. And he says, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And, I, and, and, and God did answer his prayer, so that statement was considered a statement of faith. Uh, and so what we need to realize is that, that if we have stumble and fumble a couple of times, it doesn't mean that we're unbelievers. Amen. Uh, help thou my unbelief. <laughs> And, and you know, why would that be considered a statement of faith? Help thou my unbelief. Yeah, okay. Dean says you're calling out to the Lord. That's a good thing, right? Somebody else says you're acknowledging. Yeah, you, you realize that you need help, but unbelievers don't know they need help. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes, they don't think they need when you're a total unbeliever, you're not worried about that you have unbelief because you don't think faith in God is a worthy thing to have anyhow. Yes? Yeah, let's just think of some examples. I've been with a number of godly people when they were dying. 
And um, I see different degrees of how they're, the grace they have to handle it. Some people struggle more than others. Some people are, are somewhat calm and they're, they know they're going to go be with the Lord and so whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Other people struggle with doubts and fears because we haven't died before. We don't know what it's like. It's, we're going to an unknown territory. And I wouldn't assume that because a, a, a Christian is struggling, dying, that's that some failure. It's not. Absolutely not. Because that person is trusting God. I think the one that was most interesting to me was Harold Johnson. Harold, uh, you'd have to have been around here a long time to remember Harold Johnson, because I think he died in the mid-80s, but I visited him every other week for many years. Um, and I just loved him so much. Wonderful man. Just a wonderful Christian man. But he was, suffered miserably dying. I mean, it was just, just, just miserable suffering. His body itched all over, you know, kidney failures and stuff you go through. He was just in horrible torture. And I, and I went to visit him just a couple of hours before he went to be with the Lord. And here's what he said. What a miserable life this is. And I, I, I had to start laughing. I said, you know what, Harold? Going through everything you're going through, if that's the worst thing you're going to say, I think you got, you're pretty sanctified. <laughs> what a miserable life this is. And I can say, amen. What a miserable life this is. And then he went to be with the Lord. So, the, the, the idea is that I, I love this about the Bible. It, it tells us everything about these peop, great people, including their stumbles and their failures and their taking two steps backwards before they take three forward. Because the Bible is trying to show that our hope has to be in God and not a man. Amen. And so the patriarchs are not made to be superhuman heroes greater than life. They're real ordinary people with the kind of problems we have. Amen. But God used them. And that's why sometimes I don't like these Christian biographies because they don't always do that. Yes. Uh, the last, the last sentence of that passage about Sarah, uh, she says that she considered him faithful and promised. We know that that in the Old Testament they they laugh. They they, mm-hmm. they weren't in unbelief. They just laugh. They just couldn't understand it. But she said, consider him faithful and promised. She considered him faithful in, in my opinion, which just happens to me after the fact. You know, like I pray for I pray for guidance, I pray for help. And God does help me, but I don't realize that He has helped me until I look back. Then you, after the fact you see the faithfulness of God. And she surely did. And you know, I don't think I don't believe that Abraham and Sarah either ever gave up on any promise. Alright? The fact that they really did believe the promise is what created most of the crisis in their lives. Because they knew God's promise was true and that Abraham's seed would be many descendants, but they couldn't see how. And, and so they struggled with seeing how. They never doubted that God really did make the promise and that it was a valid promise. Yes, Mike? Well, you can see Abraham's faith grow because uh, at this point you couldn't see a, a child coming. And he has Isaac and, and God asked him to take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And he's got more faith. 
And, yeah. And, and now we can't even, you know, I think it's harder to come up with your own idea of what's going to happen, but God worked it out. And, um, you know, he said God will provide the sacrifice, and, and he, he knew, you know, for whatever reason, God gave him this son. You know, it was God's doing, and if God uh, had a purpose for having him sacrifice him on the mountain, he was willing to trust, not knowing all the implications. Right. In fact, it says in the New Testament, he believed the necessary God would raise him from the dead. But he didn't know. I mean, uh, he, he, he's, it's, you know, this faith is something that, you know, sometimes you're going blind, 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 but you're trusting. And, uh, and like you say, it's a struggle. It's, you know, we, we have our own human nature and, and, and we struggle. But when you see progress, it's God working in you. It's you know it says the Lord will uh, cause you to will and to act according to His purpose. So Philippians, you know, yeah. If you can see in your life uh, God working, you know, uh, be thankful for that. You know, uh, be joyous about Amen. that. And you know, a lot of times, like you say. Just realizing you're, you're a sinner, and you know, a lot of times the Holy Spirit will take you through a time where He reveals to you you're a lot bigger sinner than you thought. You know, when you see that, instead of instead of getting down, be thankful that the Lord is opening your eyes, and the Lord is working with you, that yeah. He cares for you, and you know, it should be more reason for faith. And you can see Abraham as he yeah. goes through these stages, his faith increases. Yeah, his faith is so much stronger in chapter 22 of Genesis than it was in chapter 15 and 16 and 17. But that's a good point. And I think every one of us could look at things like that um, after the fact. Some of the worst times I've ever gone through in my life, I look back now as what necessary for me to become who God wanted me to be later, to get me where I needed to be later. I can see it now. When you're in it, I don't care how many people tell you it's a good thing. You can't believe that. Amen. You know, they, they sound like Job's comforters. All right. <laughs> you know, um, but later, after the fact, we see the wisdom of God and his providential oversight of, of our lives. And you see why he did what he did. Had I not gone through a really bad time, I would have never gone to seminary. Because um, I thought my Bible college degree was adequate for preaching the gospel, which it was. But what I didn't know was that God was preparing me to take on some of these issues nationally that we're dealing with now. And I needed that seminary to be able to go into a bigger arena. I could There's no way I could figure that out. No way I know it would ever happen. So you kind of just... Do, live the life that God gives you. Um, use a golf me- metaphor. Play the ball where it lies. <laughs> and sometimes it lands in the rocks and the weeds, but you just got to hit it. And the Lord, but if you do it in faith, the Lord will cause it, all things to work together for good. Yes. I'm really enjoying this, studying this, this study this morning because as you walk in faith, I'm going to do something. I think they have a tendency to 
to stumble around that way. I think there's a reason for that, um, Dean. Uh, there's this view of God's will that that's I've been discussing it late, lately with some people. There's this idea of uh, there, there's two understandings of God's will. One of them is that there's two God's will is twofold, which is what I believe: His providential will and His moral will. His moral will is revealed in Bible, and it's what God says is true, false, right, wrong, or whatever. That's God's moral will. Providential will is how God rules His universe and brings history forward day by day. His providential will includes both good and evil. In other words, God's providential will included Pharaoh being evil. Amen. All right? And Jesus being crucified. Amen. God's moral will is what's revealed. Now, some people say there's three wills in God. The third one is this blueprint that we have to figure out ahead of time for our own life. All right? And uh, I used to believe that. But boy, did that frustrate me, like what you're talking about. I thought if I could get personal revelation from God about my own future and be able to take a right and take a left every time I'm supposed to, that I could find this perfect blueprint and that I'd get the Midas touch. Okay? Other things would work out. Not necessarily to get rich, but so I'd have a more successful ministry or everybody I'd witnessed to would get saved because I'd go just to the right one. And I struggled under that to the point where I finally decided to do a study on it. And I read a book that was written in 1983 by a guy named Friesen on the will of God, this decision-making in the will of God. And he rejected that view. And he says that no, we're looking for something that God didn't promise to give us, which is a blueprint for our future life that we have to perfectly follow. We don't know the future. It's like those businessmen in James. We're going to go to here and there in this city. We're going to make a big profit. And what does it say? You should have said, if the Lord wills. You don't know that. God isn't going to tell you that if you buy this stock, you're going to get, make money on it. Yes. You have to go to back to definitions. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. You know, you could write a, a, a book on that sentence. You know, you wanted to blueprint so you could see. But it's not faith if you can see it. And when, when we talk about uh, where does faith come from, you know, it says Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. <laughs> so, the, this faith is being given to us as grace by God, from God. You know, and, and sometimes we think, well, i got to conjure it up. i got to put some effort yeah. into it. I've got to, you know, I, I've got to do it on my own. It's something I do. No. You receive faith, just like you receive grace, just like you receive salvation. And so you need to go to the source and ask and pray Amen. And, and learn and know uh, what, what God's Word says about this and not be relying on your own power to conjure this stuff. Yeah, boy, did I struggle when, before. It, uh, most of my struggles were from the time... Nine, early 70s when I started listening to false doctrine until the early 80s when I got out of the false doctrine. False beliefs hurt you. I don't care how sincere they are. Amen. And I really did believe 
that God was going to give me some revelation and I would get this Midas touch, at least in ministry. Uh, I remember coming into this building in 1974. I was graduating from Bible college and I had quit Iowa State University as a senior, or no, as a junior with good grades. I could have been a chemical engineer. I could have had an income. I could have had a way to take care of my family. Now that I quit and I went to a Bible college and I graduated, and I didn't know where to go, what to do. Had no, I was making $2.25 an hour. And I had a, my wife and I had a baby on the way. And we were living in a $100 a month apartment, furnished. All right. And I was just, I thought God was going to just say, go do this. Here's where you go. And I was going to try to, I just, I tried everything I could. I, I couldn't figure it out. I came down here to this building when Jesus people was here and I had a meeting to meet with their pastors to try to get into ministry with them. And I really wanted to do it and I had an education and I was fairly articulate and could preach a sermon. I thought I could get on with them. And when, I, when we got here, we went up here. I, that's, the office I'm in right now was the pastor's office back then. They had this big leather sofa in there and a fancy mahogany desk. And I remember going into that office for this meeting. They never showed up. Absolutely, never showed up. And I walked out of there and I said, well, I guess I'm not supposed to do this. <laughs> and here I am. I'm in that office, but, but where's the mahogany desk and a leather sofa? I'd like to know. <laughs> yeah, I got for Micah. <laughs> Yeah. Someone's like that. That's almost like where uh, purpose-driven comes from, isn't it? Well, I don't know that that book is necessarily. In some ways, it seems that way. God's got a wonderful plan for your life, and you're going to figure out what it is. See, if um, I wrote an article on this, by the way, called um, uh, something about the will of God and Christian liberty. What what I assert is the blueprint idea. Is a, is a transgression of true Christian liberty. In other words, if there's this one blueprint, then it somehow has to be revealed by some supernatural mystical revelation that you don't have liberty anymore. And I would say that people that believe that way end up in all kinds of trouble. And I give an illustration in my article. Let's say there's a young man who's uh, in Bible college and meets a young lady. They're both Christian. And... He's thinking, okay, God, is this the one I'm supposed to marry? So he goes to get a revelation. Alright, because he's got to find a blueprint. And he's, and he, and he, and, a, and the prophet of God comes and says, Thus saith the Lord, thou shalt marry Jane. But there's this other lady, lady Susie, that he could marry too, because they're both interested in him. So he marries Jane. Well, a little bit later, turns out Jane has a serious health issues that are irresolvable, and they get into financial problems, and life becomes very difficult, very miserable, and he has to care for her. And it becomes a distraction from his ministry because his wife is, is so ill. People under this blueprint idea start thinking, and I've had them tell me this, I married the wrong person. Surely if God was revealing to me whom I should marry, he would have had me marry the one who was healthy and would be able to help me in the ministry, not the one who's sick later that I couldn't foresee who I have to care for. 
And I, I think that there's a real problem with that thinking. And in my article, I said, this is a matter of Christian liberty. Amen. When you're a young man or a young woman or whoever you may be, sometimes we're not so young, <laughs> and you're um, deciding about marriage, there's the moral will of God which gives us the rules, the parameters. All right? But providentially, we're free to make our decision. And our, our decision, whatever it is, is part of God's providence. Amen. All right? And when I decide I'm going to marry Diane, which I did in 1972, that was as much as God's providence. It wasn't that I had to get a revelation that that's what I was supposed to do. And when I say for better or for worse, at the marriage ceremony, I am committing to God's moral will. Amen. Because it's not yet revealed whether it is going to be for better or for worse. Right. <laughs> All right? right? You know, I can't know that. I can't know whether we're going to have problems or whether we're going to have children that are a blessing or children that are... I can't know what the future holds, but I can commit to God's moral will, for better or worse. So God's moral will is at some point later in life it's for worse. I made a commitment. It was my free choice to do so in my Christian liberty. And now I need to do everything I can to make this a Christian marriage. Now what happens if that doesn't work out? People get end up divorced at times, and there's things they couldn't have foreseen. I, uh, there's a lot of tragedies and sorrows that happen in life. It's part of God's providence. But the, the blueprint thing will always leave us with recriminations. And I, and I say that it will always leave us feeling like we're failing. Because we can never get this blueprint right. All right? All right? So I don't know how we got on this topic. Oh, Sarah. Um, Sarah didn't have a blueprint, did she? <coughs> so she had to struggle to end up finally with her son. Right. Yes. Even the prophet said, well, the greatest revelation is God loved you. He revealed <coughs> what's going to sustain you, like the prophet said. Even though the cattle aren't in the stalls and the grapes not on the vine and the pigs <laughs> in the tree, and though my wife don't love me, I had a hundred wives don't love me, God has revealed himself that it isn't you that love me, Dan, it's I love you. God so loved Dan Litsky. That's what will sustain me, even if my wife hates me, like Job says, she says, curse God and die. And he says, I love you, God, and you're loving me, I love you, my wife, whether you love me back or not. It's a love affair with God. You love your wife and she can't stand you. You love her because God loves her. And you love your children, you love your enemies. God says, bless them. How are you going to bless your enemies that curse you? If you don't ask God to love them, it's all about love. It's God's love for us. It's such a love affair that it's, it's beyond comprehension. We won't be married in heaven. We'll be married to God. It's going to be such a love affair. It's incomprehensible. So let that love sustain us now. And like right now, I'm just wore out. Some atheist yelling at me for an hour how he hates God, how he's got peace without God. Well, you know what? I knew I was going to hell. When I was dying. They say, you can't know you're going to heaven. I guarantee you when I was under 40 ton of truck, my life went before me and I knew I was going to hell. Damn. And I cried Expl- out to Explain God. to me. Love sustained me. Let's, tell a little bit more about that. Now, you got in an accident? I got in an accident. I was a young man, 18 and a half years old. You think you own the world. You can do everything. You're popular. You got everything. I got a couple of cycles. I had a job young and I had everything going for me, a boat. 
and I let this gal drive the cycle because I'm always easy going, something told me not to, and she drove through town. All of a sudden, we come out of this river stand on Highway 61, and it's stuck in low gear, and, and the highway is like a little, at that time in the 61, was a little thing in the middle island. There was four lanes, and she'd stuck in low gear, and she started screaming and hitting. I was on the back, and there was many witnesses. They said I went up like a diver and come down and hit my head. I didn't have a helmet, and a semi was coming. I hit my head and slid. The tandem wheels, the semi was coming, and I hit behind the tandem wheels, and I looked up, and there was the back wheel coming from my head. And people were watching. He said he took their heads and put it like this, and Mr. Martin said, I knew you would be dead. And then in that millisecond, in that millisecond, I looked up, and it was like my life went before me in a millisecond. God's speaking to my heart. He says, where's your friends now? Who can help you now? And I was looking up and it was coming. And I was knew I was leaving this earth. I knew I wouldn't be with Christ. I knew I was leaving. I can't explain it. I was 18 and a half. It was like nothing meant nothing to me. And I was leaving never to come back and be without Christ. I was horrified. And just before it was coming, I cried out, "Who can, God spoke my heart. Who can help you now? And I cried out, Jesus, in my soul, help me. And the semi missed my head by that much. Now remember, I had hit on cement. I should be paralyzed. My head blew up as big as the water. Now in 61, they couldn't do nothing for your mind. They can't even do nothing. Now I laid in the hospital screaming for God. Couldn't see. Blind. And you know what? My soul wasn't saved yet. God saved my hide. Then I thought i got to go to St. John's to be a priest to pay God back. So I went up there and I left because I was lying to God. Ten years of hell. Going all the different churches, acting up, going crazy. Two dads, Bible down. I said, everybody's preaching Jesus in a drunken rage because I went to all their churches. I said, everybody's preaching Jesus. I don't understand. And then God, help me, Lord. And then God sent an ex-atheist that told me the gospel in Cocoa Beach, Florida, in front of 2,000 hippies. And I said, if that's the truth, that I could be saved in no mortal sin and I could go to heaven and know it, that's the best news in the universe. And I jumped up, and them hippies were, it didn't matter. I said, I had never been so happy in my life. And then I was a baby Christian. I didn't understand, because then there was a Jehovah's Witness. I said, what about them? He said, well, help you. But I was a baby Christian. I got saved. It was God's love. That's what sustains me. That's what will take me to heaven. That's what will give me joy on hell on earth. It's His love. And I'll shout it from the mountaintop. Okay. <laughs> Dan, we're glad the Lord saved you. Amen. Well, you're talking. We were talking about providence, and that's providence right there. You know what? I debated a guy on the radio who has a story just about like yours. Well, he's an atheist today. He fell under a train and should have died. And when he got off, got, when he survived the train, he decided there was no God. So God's grace revealed the truth to you. Yes, it did. Yeah, I know. Anyhow, um, what were we talking about? God's providential will. Yes, yes. I think, too, the experiences, you know, he did not have, Abraham did not have scripture. We do. Yeah. And we can look back on scripture, but do we? You know, we find in our life we don't. And I think experiences in our life, and I remember coming from Texas, um, praying because my parents were divorced when I was very young and I did not want to live that lifestyle. And met a Nebraska in college. We ended up living 23 years in Iowa on a farm. 
<laughs> well, I knew that you had wisdom. I understand that. So anyway, but it was through prayer as a child, praying for my husband. And I knew nothing when I was walking down that aisle except I'm not going to get to date anymore. I'm just going to get married and everything. But God knew much more than I did. And I trusted him and I did love him. And we will be celebrating 35 years soon. But, you know, it's it's through your prayers, too. But we have scriptures. Sarah yeah. didn't. Abraham didn't. No, they just knew what God had said. They knew, right? Yeah. And, and we are to look at their lives. Yeah. Right. That's, and that's what Hebrews is doing. It's without, we're made perfect in some ways, not without them, it says. That, you know, we need their examples. And, you know, talking about the blueprint idea, Abraham and Sarah didn't have a blueprint. They just knew that God, they were, Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. So faith is being willing to obey God and take a step of faith and do what you, what you have to do without no assurance of the details of how it's going to work. Is that right? And so, God told me to preach the gospel. I knew that much, and that was providential as well. But I didn't know how it was going to work out, and I couldn't have ever conceived of how it did, but it did. So, I just thank God that I, I'm i still here, and I can still preach the gospel. All right, yes. No, the Bible. It doesn't. No, it doesn't say that anywhere. In fact, we just read it. By faith, she received the ability to conceive. The Bible said Sarah had faith. It doesn't say. There's nowhere. Not even in the Old Testament is it portrayed as rebellion. That's just not true. It's, Yeah, that's that's what we're saying. That the faith doesn't always look like we might think it looks like. It is faith. Well, it, well, that's what it says. I I totally agree. That's what Hebrews says. Yes, right. Amen. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. It says in Romans ten. So uh, next week we'll continue on our. Oh wait, by, I'm gone next week. What do you want to do? That's the one Sunday I'm going to miss this summer. <laughs> Wrong answer. Ryan, can you lead the Bible study next week? All right. Ryan will lead the Bible study next week. Why don't you? Hebrews 11, you see where we are with Sarah. All right. Uh, okay, so we will be back with Hebrews next week. God bless you. Let me stop this.